The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A warm welcome, everybody. This is Squawk Box. Let's get into your headlines. President Trump threatens to withdraw U.S. funding from the WHO, blaming the health agency for getting its guidance on the coronavirus pandemic all wrong and being too China-centric. They could have called it months earlier. They would have known. And uh, they should have known. And they probably did know. So we'll be looking into that very carefully. And we're going to put a hold on money spent to the WHO. France's death toll tops 10,000, becoming the fourth country to pass that threshold. Authorities in Paris have tightened the lockdown to curb the spread, banning outdoor exercise during daylight hours. UK fatalities accelerate to 786 on Tuesday, but officials say there are signs the spread is slowing. This is the UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson spends a second night in intensive care despite his condition stabilising. I'm confident he'll pull through because if there's one thing I know about this Prime Minister, he's a fighter and he'll be back at the helm leading us through this crisis in short order. EU finance ministers pull an all-nighter to agree on a bailout package for the bloc's economy, but talks are ongoing amid differences over the exact rescue measures. And Wall Street indices give up sharp gains to close in the red, but crude rallies on hopes an output agreement may be near, despite the US insisting it will not take part. Morning all, thanks for joining us. Uh, let's get into that top headline. US President Donald Trump has threatened to withdraw funding from the WHO, accusing the World Health Organization of giving bad advice and being too China-centric. President Trump said the organization which declared the new coronavirus a global health emergency in January, quote, truly blew it, getting every aspect of its guidance wrong. The U.S. leader specifically cited the agency pushing back on his decision to ban travel from China. Speaking at the White House press conference, the president also blamed the WHO for not acting earlier. World Health Organization, because they really are, uh, they called it wrong. They call it wrong. They really, they missed the call. They could have called it months earlier. They would have known, and uh, they should have known, and they probably did know. So we'll be looking into that very carefully, and we're going to put a hold on money spent to the WHO. We're going to put a very powerful hold on it, and we're going to see. It's a great thing if it works, but when they call every shot wrong, that's no good. President Trump, France has become the fourth country to surpass 10,000 coronavirus deaths. This after a further 607 people passed away in hospitals and 820 in nursing homes, the second straight daily increase. Prime Minister Edouard Philippe has said the end of lockdown measures, which were originally designed to run until April 15th, quote, will not happen overnight. Meanwhile, the British Prime Minister Boris Johnson remains in hospital 
as he continues to battle the coronavirus. Steve is outside St Thomas's Hospital. Uh, Steve, so just uh, how bad is the Prime Minister at this stage? What do we know? There's a lot we don't know, Jeff, and let's be totally honest about this as well. When he went in on Sunday evening, they were talking about him working through the whole process, just precautionary. Uh, Prime Minister, even as of Monday lunchtime, was seen to be working on his red box and everything was fine. And then conditions worsened uh, on Monday evening and he was sent into ICU uh, at 7pm on Monday evening. Nello, there was a great deal of worry, let's be honest about it, at the dramatic turn of events. And uh, I've been here, as you know, many times over the the last couple of weeks and uh, the crews that turned up here... uh, Uh, to accompany me and my cameraman were were quite extraordinary 40 50 crews here yesterday Uh, so there was grave concerns up until i would suggest early afternoon about the prime minister's health when it started to come out a couple of statements from downing street throughout the day that the prime minister had stabilized that he wasn't on a ventilator that he was in good spirits as well uh, and that he was having standard oxygen treatment as well so i think a little bit of the tension a little bit of concern has gone out of the story but there's no doubt about it when you go into intensive care it is stunningly serious and i think something we've all got to get used to following uh, the health of the Prime Minister and indeed the whole global population who are suffering from coronavirus. This disease, this virus can last a very long time. Very good piece in the Guardian newspaper in the UK today talking about the number of people who have gone into ICU in England, Wales and Northern Ireland that there is data available for. Now we have a figure of 2,249 people. Of those people throughout this coronavirus crisis in the UK that have gone in, 1,559 are still in. So that is a huge percentage are still in ICU. So for those of us who think the Prime Minister could be in one day, couple of days rest in ICU, get out to a ward and then get back to Downing Street in a very short time frame, maybe that is a little bit optimistic. And and there is a sobering stat from that same article in The Guardian that of those who have left ICU, 344 have been discharged alive and 346 have passed away. So we must think about an elongated time frame before the Prime Minister is back to health. I think that's very important as well. But again, good news is he's stable and apparently in good spirits. So what's going on in the meantime? Well, Dominic Raab was talking about the Prime Minister, uh, talking about what goes on next, as he's the 46-year-old Foreign Secretary, first Secretary of State, who's taken over the role at the moment uh, of being the primus inter pare, so to speak, the, the, the leader of the cabinet. But it is collective responsibility, as he was emphasising. Let's hear from Dominic Raab talking last night. He remains stable overnight. He's receiving standard oxygen treatment and breathing without any assistance. He's not required any mechanical ventilation or non-invasive respiratory support. He remains in good spirits and in keeping with usual clinical practice, his progress continues to be monitored closely in critical care. Lots more to say throughout the morning programme. We can come to this, but safe to say the UK death toll yesterday was absolutely horrendous as well. Biggest number yet, 786 mortalities. That followed 439 recorded uh, as of late Monday as well. The total figure now, 6159. That is a horrendous number, but uh, there is a but here. And the Chief Medical Officer, Chris Whitty, and the Chief Scientific Advisor, Sir Patrick Valance, are talking about the lack of exponential growth in the numbers, the levelling off, the plateauing. And this is very important because if we're ever going to get out of the lockdown, that needs to happen. Let's discuss that a little bit later on. But for now, back to you, my friend. Steve, thank you very much indeed. We'll see you later. Let's uh, just update our audience on something that is starting to trickle through from sources. 
Uh, Sylvia, who covers the EU for us, uh, reporting this hour that there is no deal at the Eurogroup level. This Eurogroup meeting was meant to hold a press conference at 8 o'clock yesterday evening to announce progress on what was thought to be about a half a trillion worth of credit lines, effectively, from the ESM to European countries. At this hour, uh, we still have no breakthrough. We were expecting a press conference uh, to happen a little later uh, during the show, about 9 o'clock uh, London time, 10 uh, Central European time. But the sources telling CNBC and Sylvia specifically that there will not be a breakthrough on this deal today and that the Eurogroup will hold another day of talks. Uh, that breaking news this hour. Obviously, we'll continue to uh, follow up on the story and just see what further detail we can get at this point. The White House has called for $250 billion in additional aid for small U.S. businesses struggling amid statewide lockdowns. The funds would add to the $349 billion in forgivable small business loans passed last month. Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin says a bill is already being discussed among congressional leaders. Majority Leader Mitch McConnell added the aid could be passed as soon as tomorrow marking a shift in outlook after urging Congress last week not to issue a, quote, premature fourth stimulus bill. Our colleagues in the U.S. will be speaking with Treasury Secretary Mnuchin later on today. Make sure to tune in to that 1500 CET for that conversation. Latest numbers from the IIF suggests the global debt pile is set to grow dramatically this year as governments increase spending to cushion the blow from the virus pandemic. That according to the latest analysis from the Institute of International Finance, the body says a global recession looms due to the outbreak, adding the downturn would begin with $87 trillion more in global debt than at the onset of the 2008 financial crisis. Well, let's bring Michael Howell into the conversation. Michael is the CEO of Cross Border Capital. Michael, good morning to you. Those numbers from the IIF are arresting at this point, and they obviously lead us down the road to believe that we are heading into what could be a quite serious recession. And yet markets have tried successively to put put on gains in the last few days here. Are markets being complacent given this growing debt pile and the prospects of recession from closing businesses? Long term, there's clearly a problem with taking on too much debt. That, that is clear. Uh, we've seen that over the last decade. Debt is not good. On the other hand, one's got to look at the short term and look at the degree of stimulus that governments and central banks are actually throwing at their economies. And if you look at these numbers, they're absolutely awesome. Uh, we're talking about something like six to seven trillion in QE packages alone. That would take central bank balance sheets up by about one third from their pre-crisis levels or pre-virus crisis levels. And you're talking about something like the equivalent of a 40% jump in global liquidity. These are numbers we've just never seen before. Fiscal deficits on the IMF numbers could be, you know, we could be seeing a 6.5% of GDP stimulus globally. So there's an awful lot of money going into markets, and that is likely to cause, I would suggest, an inflation problem coming into 2021. And that's one of the things that markets are not yet focused on. 
uh, U.S. monetary growth this year could conservatively be in the 15 to 20 percent range. So if you take a trend growth in the U.S. economy at best of 3 percent, we're talking probably 5 to 10 percent inflation, CPI inflation at some stage in the next two years. So that's the longer term. In the short term here, the markets, it seems to me, have been incredibly sensitive to the rise in new coronavirus infections. We we saw that remarkable turnaround through the session yesterday where we thought we were going to see a second day of positive closes. And yet that 900 point gain just melted away in the Dow to the close here. Is that the key benchmark for whether these rallies can last, whether we see the flattening of the infection curve and a drop in deaths? Yes, there's there's no question markets have been driven by near term virus statistics. That That's clear. But if you look at the degree of risk aversion going on in markets, it's unparalleled. Uh, we've not seen anything like this before. The shift into safe assets like treasuries and cash has just been without without uh, previous experience. To give you an idea, we look at risk appetite indexes worldwide. Uh, the low points are normally about minus 40 on a scale of plus 50 to minus 50. We're looking at numbers now of near a minus 80. These numbers have just never been seen before, uh, even if you go back 50 years. So we're talking about a degree of risk aversion, which is unparalleled. Equity markets look cheap on certainly a two-year view. Michael, good morning to you. Look, I want to pick up on that debt data from the IIF. And I've been wrong, and uh, Tim Adams from the IIF has been wrong, and Jeff's been wrong for the best part of a decade worrying about these figures because no one else seems to care about them as well. Household debt now topping $48 trillion. Non-financial corporate debt has surged over 70% since 2007. Let's just think about that. Debt is up over 70% for non-financial corporates since 2007. That's near 92% of GDP. Will it ever matter? Will I always be wrong about worrying about debt? Yeah, it doesn't matter if the world gets to Japanese-type levels of 230% debt to GDP sovereign as well. Who cares? We're off to the races, yeah? Well, I think no. I think if you look at the last 10 years, what have you seen in financial markets? You've seen basically climbing uh, a sort of a mountain of, uh, of, uh, of equity gains, but with crevasses. And those crevasses are very sharp. Those are the financial crises we're talking about and we're talking about again. And that comes back not just to the virus issue, it comes back to debt. The whole point about these debt piles is they need to be refinanced. The financial system is not a way of raising new capital so much. It's a way of refinancing ex- existing debts. And that fundamentally is the problem. If you've got $300 trillion of debt worldwide, which is what the figure is, and you've got a five-year average life, you've got to roll $60 trillion a year. Is there the balance sheet and the liquidity available to do that? Short answer, no. That's why we keep seeing these financial crises. And if you're running a policy which is, which is austerity combined with low interest rates, you are encouraging more and more debt. It's a reckless policy. All right. So you're you're in the wilderness with me, Jeff and Tim Adams on this one as well. Then, OK, what do our viewers do to offset these concerns? Well, I think the concerns basically are, are, are longer term about growth. I mean, at the end of the day, if you look at the, at, the, at the demographics and the growth profile of the West, it is not encouraging. Most economic activity now is being is coming from China. And I think one of the things one's got to look at is whether this virus scare or this virus concern is a tipping point for the world economy that leads China to come out of this relatively stronger than the West. 
But one of the things you've got to start focusing on, I think, pretty clearly is what's happening to Chinese bond yields relative to U.S. treasuries and what's happening more particularly to the yuan currency against the U.S. dollar. Will the yuan come out of this stronger or weaker? My bet is it's going to come out stronger. And that is going to be a significant moment for the world economy. Until then, what investors have got to start thinking about is repositioning assets, I would suggest, for a world where, first of all, there's a huge stimulus coming short term, which means equities will rally. And secondly, you're going to see inflation pressures picking up in the next 18 months, which means get clear of bond markets, go into gold and have some protection with equities. Great to have you on the programme. Thanks for the analysis, Michael. Good to see you. Michael Howell, the CEO of Cross Border Capital. Uh, coming up on the programme, European finance ministers pull an all-nighter, but sources are telling CNBC this hour they have failed to reach a deal on a common economic response. We'll have more on that when we come back. If you enjoy Squawk Box Europe, check out the Brave Ones podcast. The series explores the rise of some of the world's most successful entrepreneurs. Through exclusive interviews with family, friends and colleagues, the Brave Ones podcast features stories of determination, resilience and ingenuity. Available on Apple Podcast, Spotify and Google Play. The Brave Ones podcast presented by Credit Suisse. European finance ministers have failed to reach an agreement on a coordinated rescue plan for the bloc after 16 hours of talks. Mario Santino has taken to Twitter to say negotiations will have to continue one more day with officials reconvening by video call tomorrow. Sylvia joins us with more. And Sylvia, I I suspect you've probably had a fairly long night as well tracking the developments here. Um, What's the problem? Why have we got no progress? Uh, Yesterday, I thought we were going into this with a half a trillion euros on the table and a plan for extended credit lines from the ESM. Who doesn't want this? Well, we saw the same uh, opposition from the northern countries, in particular the Netherlands, when it comes to uh, developing a new credit line through the ESM. But I have to say uh, as well that just because we don't have an agreement just as of yet, but that does not mean that the ministers will not come out with something tomorrow, because the fact that they've been talking throughout the night, it does suggest that they are committed, that they want to reach a compromise. However, as you mentioned, after 16 hours of discussions, there was no agreement whatsoever for now. And certain countries, in particular the Netherlands, Denmark and Austria, want some conditionality attached to the loans provided uh, by the ESM. However, other nations such as Italy and Spain do not want any strings attached. They do not want any sort of fiscal targets in return for financial help. So this impasse remains. And the other sticking point, Jeff, is over joint EU debt issuance. This has been a very difficult issue for the finance ministers for weeks now, and that's not changed over the last 24 hours. So certain countries, including Italy, France, Spain, uh, but also Ireland and Luxembourg, are pushing for a commitment to develop a new debt instrument. They want this commitment to be fully approved by the Eurogroup, However, the usual opposition, mainly from the Netherlands, has blocked this idea so far. So the ministers will reconvene again tomorrow in order to try and reach a a compromise over these two main issues. 
We were told by Ursula von der Leyen uh, that what was needed was a Marshall Plan, um, something of the effectiveness of the plan, something overwhelming, something that would show clear commitment by all countries in the Eurozone. This falls a long way short of that, even if it is passed at uh, the meeting over the next day or so, Sylvia. Well, I was actually reading a, a note this morning from Burdenberg Bank saying that uh, um, given this health and President health emergency, the political signal matters more than any technical detail. And that's also what you're hitting on. It's about what the finance ministers want to really tell the uh, uh, electorates back home. And we know this is a very difficult issue for all member states. They have anti-EU parties in national parliaments in different European countries. So the, the more they delay these, uh, this compromise, um, the essentially um, more argument these anti-EU parties have. Um, and we don't know what sort of consequences this impasse will have on the future of the EU at this stage. But there's a lot in the, in the neck, uh, in the line at, as uh, the finance ministers delay uh, um, this compromise. But again, I cannot stress enough that just because they delay it, it does not mean that we'll get something later on this week. All right, Sylvia, thank you very much indeed for that. We'll continue to watch this story. Obviously, Mario uh, Centeno is talking about this on Twitter. There was supposed to be a press conference at 9 local London time, 10 CET out of Brussels. We'll see whether we get anything else from that meeting and obviously it continues for another day or so so i popped over to the wall just to give you a, a quick look at uh, what's going on in the asian markets and i have to tell you it's a bit of a mixed session here the japanese market really the only one that is making gains at this point we are up two percent there but of course there is this trickle of information coming out of japan about how they are going to fund these new emergency measures and how they are going to try and provide further stimulus we're talking about uh, fresh debt issuance from the Japanese government to help them ameliorate the worst impacts from coronavirus. And I think what we're seeing across the rest of the Asian markets here is just the hangover of that weakness we saw in the US session. Ultimately, as I think I mentioned at the top of the show, if you haven't seen it, the chart pattern is extraordinary. How do you turn a 4% gain into a slight loss for the market. That was the story of the Dow through the session yesterday. Uh, what are the opening calls in Europe tell us at this point? Well, it's a little bit of a mixed bag. And I have to tell you, when I first came in, these were looking uh, firmly negative. But the US futures um, have turned a little bit higher. We'll have to see whether we hang on to that. But the message that we had from the U.S. futures is that we might get a couple of hundred point bounce. And we'll show you those uh, a little bit later on. Obviously, the closer we get to the open, the firmer the information we get from those futures. But the message at the moment, we will have a fairly tepid start to the trading session, according to these numbers, with perhaps a little bit of up, a little bit of down as the market tries to get to grips with some of the new information. And of course, we anticipate the Federal Reserve minutes. That will be one of the big events today. The other was meant to be the Eurogroup announcement. But I think clearly there's not going to be much of a splash from that over the next 24 hours. 
Oil, fascinating. Crude is catching a bit in early trade after Brent and WTI lost over 8% during yesterday's session. Optimism has returned a little bit over a potential output deal set to be brokered by OPEC plus countries on Thursday over video conference. However, the US has doubled down on its key message that it will not formally take part in production cuts with the Energy Department confirming private oil giants have already slowed output. Um, Fascinating number. They think about a million barrels per day already coming off the market in the US because the shale drillers have adjusted their production to the demand that they see cratering at this time. ExxonMobil is cutting its CapEx budget by $10 billion. It represents a 30% cut in capital spending for the US oil major. CEO Darren Woods explaining the decision to our colleagues stateside and justified keeping the company's dividend. A lot of those cuts are coming out of the Permian, where we have um, a short cycle investment uh, plays there, or more easily uh, adjusted in the short term. And we're doing that while preserving the longer term value. The longer term, to maintain that balance sheet, you've got to have uh, projects and invest in advantage projects. So that is a key priority. And of course, a lot of our uh, shareholders are retail shareholders, people who uh, depend on that dividend. So we've been pretty committed to maintaining that and, and if necessary in the short term, using the balance sheet to support it. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show weekdays on CNBC.